0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett.
1: And I'm Sabrina.
0: This week we have an interview with Ethan Pettis. And just a quick warning, I guess. (laughs) He wrote a book that's all about the Vietnam War. So if you don't want to hear...
1: With dinosaurs.
0: Yes. So if you don't want to hear about war, though, then you probably don't want to listen to the interview because it's a little bit war-themed. A little graphic, potentially. A
1: little bit graphic.
0: Yeah. But on lighter news, we have Dinosaur of the Day hoplidosaurus, and a bunch of dinosaur news. And before we get into all that, we want to thank some of our patrons. This week we would like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Blaise Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, and Glenn Liddell. Thank you all so much for your support. We really appreciate everybody who joins, and Glenn Liddell is a newcomer, so thank you for joining. It really helps us out in all our ventures. We're planning on going to Korea and Japan soon to see some dinosaur museum. So if you have any tips too, we'd be happy to hear where we should stop by. See if we can work it into our schedule.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much. And if you want to hear a little bit more about our trip so far, we're posting, trying to post more regularly on our Patreon at patreon.com slash
0: Jumping right into the news. We have a new dinosaur. I always like to start with new dinosaurs when I can. And I can about half the time, I think. <laughs> Maybe more. Yeah, it's pretty great. I love dinosaurs. So this one <laughs> is a Sanathid, which you can think Gigantoraptor. You know, really big sort of crest head. Looks a little chickenish, kind of funny. But because this is a close relative, but it's much smaller. And before I get too far into it, I should mention it was written by Yilun Yu and others, and published in Nature. And it is much, much smaller than Gigantoraptor. So, Gigantoraptor is like 3,000 kilograms, give or take, a couple hundred. This one's kind of a rounding error in Gigantoraptor because it's about 50 kilograms. (laughs) So, pretty small by comparison, but still relatively large. You know, it's similar to a human, 110 pounds. It's pretty good size for an animal. It was found in. Jucheng in the Shandong province in China, which is south of Beijing. It's kind of near the Yellow Sea, so on the coast. And it's about a thousand kilometers southeast of where a gigantoraptor is from. So not too far apart in terms of paleontology, at least. And they named it Enamelipes jowai. And enamelipes comes from anamalus, which is why I'm pronouncing it that way sure other people have different opinions <laughs> and then the pez is because of a yeah, foot so when you combine anamalous and pez you end up with oddly shaped feet hmm. which reminds me of anchorman with the arsonist has oddly shaped feet tongue twister oh
1: i don't remember that at <laughs> all
0: <laughs> i really enjoy it and then the jowai is for Shi jin Zhao, a chinese paleontologist who contributed a lot to research in the area specifically with dinosaur fossils. Cool. And then aside from the foot, because you know that they found the foot since it's called weird foot, basically, they found most of the left leg, but that's really it. So we basically just have the leg of this dinosaur.
1: The leg and a weird foot? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) And the thing that makes Gigantoraptor so cool is its head, it has that crest on it, kind of like a lot of the Sanathids do, and an interesting sort of beak to go with it. But, you know, they didn't find any of that, so... They didn't really do any kind of speculation about what it ate or what it behaved like because I think legs aren't super useful for that kind of thing. But a really interesting part about it is it was found in this massive bone bed of Shantungosaurus, which is this really big hadrosaur. And fortunately, since it was found amongst this completely different dinosaur bones. It was easier to separate out the bones of this dinosaur because the theropod and it's small and just quite a bit different than Shantungasaurus. And they have these pictures of the quarry where they got the bones out of the bone bed. And it's like hundreds or thousands of bones. It, it just looks crazy, the number of bones in this bone bed. So it'd be cool to see what they find out about Shantungosaurus from all that excavation that I'm sure is still ongoing.
1: Wait, out of all of that, and they didn't find more than the weird foot bone?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it got basically a leg. So I guess it just got buried. You know, maybe only its leg got buried or something. Mm. And it got squished. Oh, no. (laughs) Or, you know, if all of those... A lot of times when so many dinosaurs get buried at once in a bone bed kind of thing, it's because they got trapped in a flood or some other sort of event. So maybe since it's lighter and the bones are smaller those parts might have gotten swept away. Mm. It's always harder to keep the small bones in place in an event like that. So True. They didn't really talk much about the appearance and there isn't any paleo art of it, which I think is why it didn't really make a lot of news. But it was probably feathered. We know that because Nathids are generally thought to basically all be feathered. And then it probably had a beak similar to gigantoraptor since the legs look so similar. And That beak might have been used for either shearing through tough plants or possibly even shearing through meat. So it could have been an omnivore or an herbivore or a carnivore. (laughs) It's kind of hard to say, although we've talked before about how most animals aren't purely carnivorous or herbivorous. So, you know, it might be kind of a moot point. Still fun to know. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice to find some gut contents. Oh, yeah. There's another article also from Nature by Lita Shing and others. And you can probably guess that this one is also from China. It's a new paleopathology, and it's likely a bacterial infection that was found in the rib of a lufungosaurus. And lufungosaurus is a very common sauropodomorph from southern China. We saw one when we went to the Hong Kong Museum of Science, I think is the full name. They have lots of different scientific things, but they have a nice little dinosaur area. And they have a lufungosaurus that's on loan from China because I don't think Hong Kong has... Too many dinosaurs of its own but they're all over the place they're kind of like hadrosaurs in the northeast us you just find them you know you trip over them basically
1: <laughs> it's a big thing to trip over
0: yeah and since you know there are so many of the bones it makes sense that once in a while you'll find an interesting one that has some sort of injury to it and that's the case with this rib so the rib was found about 20 years ago And they just recently put it through a CT scan. And the rib really isn't that big because even though it's a sauropod, it's a sauropodomorph and it's an early sauropodomorph. So it's from the early Jurassic about 190 million years ago. And the whole dinosaur was only about six meters or 20 feet long, which is short for a sauropod. We usually think of, you know, Brachiosaurus or something that's 100 feet long. So this is much smaller. And it's at that transition where it's sort of, quadrupedal slash bipedal. It sort of still has hands and its front limbs are still a lot shorter than the hind limbs. So it's kind of unclear if it was rearing up some of the time or how it moved around. But in this case, it looks from the outside of the rib like there's a big chunk missing. And fortunately with the CT scan, we can look inside it and then they found out that it looks like osteomyelitis. We've talked about osteomyelitis a little bit in the past. Basically, it means that it's an infection that can either be caused at the site of the osteomyelitis by something like a bite as a local trauma, or it can be a bacterial infection that started somewhere else and then kind of went through the bloodstream and ended up in the place where the osteomyelitis is happening, in this case in the rib. So they think that it's osteomyelitis because they can see phases of healing and restructuring, which created an abscess, it looks like. So it doesn't look like just a dinosaur bit it, poked a hole, and then it died. It looks like something probably bit it based on the shape of the injury. It kind of looks shaped like a tooth, sort of. And then the dinosaur got away, it didn't get killed by this bite maybe lost a little bit of its side, I guess, (laughs) managed to heal at least for a while and survived with it healing and maybe didn't last too long. It's kind of hard to say just how long it lived in that state. It probably didn't help, but (laughs) eventually, you know, it died and got fossilized. So I mentioned that we talked about this a little bit in the past. There was an article about two years ago that showed an osteomyelitis in a sauropod in Argentina And there they had the same kind of explanation. And they call, in that paper, they called the surface micro bubbly. (laughs) I remember that phrasing just because it's so interesting. When you look at it under the CT scan, I guess that's the restructuring, gives it a sort of bubbly look, or at least it did in the one in Argentina. In terms of what exactly happened, they think that the Lufungasaurus might have been bitten by a Sinosaurus, and that's a close relative of Dilophosaurus. In fact, some people think that they might be the same thing. And you're probably familiar with Dilophosaurus, the one with the two crests down its head. But of course, it's a lot bigger than the version that's in Jurassic Park that spits venom. No venom either. (laughs) And probably didn't spit venom, at least, you know, we don't have any evidence that it did. And... Sinosaurus is about the same length as Lufungasaurus, although I'm guessing it was probably lighter because, you know, it's bipedal and has to be quicker and things versus the Lufungasaurus is kind of a big lumbering sauropod type body plan. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason they think it's Sinosaurus is it's the only predator known from the area that's big enough to even really think about attacking a Lufungasaurus. Although, yeah, going after something the same size is usually not something predators do. So it's kind of interesting that it seems to have happened in this case.
1: Maybe it looked weak.
0: Yeah, it could be. That's a good point. And as an aside, just because I think this is funny, if you go to the Wikipedia page of Cynosaurus, it's got this picture of it eating a prosauropod. It's just called prosauropod in the description. And it looks just like a Lufungosaurus. And hmm. That picture has been on there for like 10 or 15 years. So it's kind of funny. Speaking of sauropods, thanks to Chris for sharing this one with us on Twitter. There's a new article by Paige DePolo and others published in the Scottish Journal of Geology, which I think is the first time we're referencing that paper. So you can guess where this discovery is from. Asia. No. (laughs) Same continent. It's from uh, Eurasia but if you consider them the same continent. So what was found is a set of new tracks that were described on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. And actually they found three sites with tracks, but this paper only talks about the second set. And they were very specific that this is the second set because the way they number all the fossils there They all have a two in it because it's the second site. I don't know why they haven't published on the first set yet. I guess they wanted to mix things up, do a Tarantino, but (laughs) they say that there are going to be more publications coming later with the first and third sets. So we'll have to wait and see what else they found. But if you're not familiar, the Isle of Skye is kind of famous for these craggy rocks sticking out of the ground. It looks really beautiful. And that's also usually a good sign for fossils because you want this nice hard rock sticking up out of the earth. Because that's where you find the fossils. If it's just covered in dirt, you're never going to find fossils. But funny enough, they found these fossils down by the ocean in another place where you often find fossils because the tide uncovers and weathers down the rock. And that's where they found basically prints full of water down in the tidal zone. I don't know if anybody knows this area, but there's a place called Brothers Point on the Isle of Skye. And that's specifically where they found these prints.
1: It's an interesting name.
0: Yeah. Yeah good place for brothers, two brothers. At least. <laughs> yeah. The prints are about 20 million years younger than Lufungasaurus, putting them in the beginning of the Middle Jurassic versus the previous paper was in the Early Jurassic, and they described 45 sauropod tracks. They're both manus or front and pes or hind feet, and only one is really really well preserved, and it might even show a fleshy heel pad. Oh. Yeah. I mean, would be handy when you're that big to have a nice fleshy pad for the bottom of your foot. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about that a little bit. Oh, it was with Borealopelta, where the foot was preserved in such good condition, you can kind of see a little bit of the fleshy heel pad. <laughs> 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 kind of like a built-in shoe. It's pretty cool. You jealous? Yeah, I could have used that when my feet get sore. But there are two sets of sauropod tracks and they go in different directions and there are also lots of scattered prints all over the place, as well as five distinctive theropod tracks which are also scattered. They classified the theropod prints as eubrontes, which is similar in size to Dilophosaurus, bringing another connection back to the previous article. But the sauropod is definitely a lot bigger than Lufungosaurus. They say that it was hard to classify because these prints have been beaten by waves for years, but they considered it to be a small sauropod because the footprints are about 50 centimeters or one and a half feet long, and then they're a little bit narrower than they are long. Still a pretty big footprint relative to anything alive today, but as far as sauropods go, it, you know, puts it in the small to medium size category. They also think that the prints were made in a lagoon, and... Yeah, again, hopefully they tell us about these unpublished prints soon. Hopefully they're in better condition, too, since these ones were pretty worn down. But if you're in Scotland and you're looking for a dinosaur activity, you can head out to this island and check out the prints.
1: Moving to a different continent, we've got news that Arizona is one step closer to having Sonorosaurus as its state dinosaur. Nice. Yeah, so the bill recently passed in the state senate with 55 yays, two nays, and three people who did not vote. And we're wondering what their objections might have been.
0: Yeah, we tweeted at them. We also tweeted at the one person. There was one either in the Senate or the House. I think actually the Senate voted first and then the House. But there were three total nays between the two houses. We tweeted at them, but they didn't respond.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we'll never know.
0: Yeah. And I think it was a mixed... A mixed bill. There were a lot of people for and against it on both sides of the aisle, so they must have had very personal reasons, not platform-specific reasons to be against dinosaurs or pro-dinosaurs.
1: Or they wanted a different dinosaur.
0: <laughs> could be.
1: Which we know that it's been controversial in the past, so yeah, maybe it still is. Could be. In some other news, engineers at the University of California, Irvine have invented some new materials that were inspired by squids and Indominus rex from Jurassic World. <laughs> so one of the authors of the paper, Alan Gorodetsky, said, quote, Basically, we invented a soft material that can reflect heat in similar ways to show how squid skin can reflect light. It goes from wrinkled and dull to smooth and shiny, essentially changing the way it reflects the heat. Hmm. Yeah, and so this material, they're saying it can be used for insulation for spacecraft, storage containers, emergency shelters, and building heating and cooling systems. And it can change from a wrinkled gray to a glossy surface, and then it changes when it's sapped with voltage or pulled at.
0: Cool. That sounds really neat. I love material science like that.
1: Moving on to museum news, there's a few of them. From now until May 6th, the Fukui Prefectural Dinosaur Museum has a special exhibit called Excavation 2017, and it's displaying fossils found between April 1st of last year to the end of March this year. During the excavation, more than 4,000 fragments were found, and they found 100 dinosaur fossils from the dig and put those on display. The display includes ankylosauria teeth, fossils of ornithopods, and six complete skeletons, including an ornithopod, Syntausaurus, and a new ankylosaur, ginupelta, which Garrett talked about on a previous episode. And for the exhibit's opening, the museum unveiled the repaired Rainbowsaurus, which is their icon. It's about 52 feet or 16 meters tall, and it looks really pretty in the pictures, kind of like this origami-like sauropod. It's been around since 2000. So the exhibit, if you're interested, costs 720 yen for adults and then cheaper for students.
0: Nice. Yeah, we got to go there. That sounds awesome.
1: Mm-hmm. The rainbow soars alone.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> in DC, the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History fossil halls reopening in about 14 months. And there's photos of a sneak peek. It shows a T-Rex skeleton attacking a triceratops, which we already knew about. We heard about how they were going to change up their triceratops and... Make it look like it's being attacked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They also have the Wankel T-Rex remains on display, which is one of the most complete T-Rex specimens found so far. And museum director Kirk Johnson said that they're starting to move skeletons in and install them. And in the meantime, if you visit, you can see museum staff and volunteers working at the fossil lab.
0: Cool. I wonder if you can see any of the exhibit now that it's getting installed. Or if they have it all blocked off.
1: Probably blocked off. Yeah. It's probably a lot to do. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) In Canberra, Australia, one dinosaur gained some fame at their National Folk Festival, which was held over Easter a couple weeks back. So his name is Plod. He's a small plastic triceratops and he was the mascot for the Crystal Shack, which was one of the stalls at the Folk Festival when they sell crystals, jewelry, jewelry fossils gems rings and rocks plod unfortunately went missing during the festival and the whole staff helped to find him so they printed up missing posters with funny kind of descriptions like 68 million years old and likes punk folk and cinnamon popcorn <laughs> and also seen last night heading past kids fest with a group of teens might be hung over in need of a and cone i don't know what that is
0: i assume it's something for the festival something australians eat
1: <laughs> So they broadcast the posters on screens and hundreds of people were asking Rob Scott, who's the owner of the Crystal Shack, if they're okay, to the point that they couldn't pack up because so many people were asking about Plod. But unfortunately, Plod was not found. Rob says he plans to go back to the festival next year with a new mascot.
0: People are always stealing these dinosaur sculptures. I guess. Stop it. (laughs) Make your own or buy one.
1: (laughs) Maybe Plod really was just too hungover.
0: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe.
1: In Missoula, Montana, about 2,000 people lost power for about an hour. This was pretty recently during a storm, I think it was. But well, One gas station lost power and had to shut down. And they had to keep a lookout on their big green dinosaur mascot. Speaking of mascots getting stolen, it's because last winter they lost power and their cameras weren't on and somebody did steal their dinosaur. Yeah. But this time everything was okay.
0: Because they were watching it. Yeah. hmm <laughs> <laughs> And thanks to Stephen for emailing this one to us. Red Podium is hosting three virtual races. And the three races are the must-go-faster sprint, which is based on the race, or it's not really a race in the movie, but in Jurassic Park, when the Jeep is outrunning the T-Rex oh. that's chasing it. And they estimated how far the T-Rex chased the Jeep. And they think it was about a half a mile or 800 meters. So they're saying that it's an 800 meter or half mile sprint.
1: Nice. <laughs> that's pretty fun.
0: Yeah. And they also said that you can do a 5K. And the reason I say you can do is because since it's a virtual race, it means that you just do it on your own and then you enter your results into this website and you don't get any awards based on the placement you know if you're the fastest or anything like that obviously because there's no way to check but you do get participation medals and or t-shirts if you pay the right fee so the medal for this one resembles the mirror from the jeep with a t-rex roaring in it so it's like that objects and mirror are closer than they appear on the bottom with the (laughs) t-rex face coming towards it and then there's also a Dino dna 5k which has this gold colored mosquito on an amber colored pendant. So it's, you know, obviously Jurassic Park related. Mm-hmm. And then they have the Raptor Run 10K, which has this metal, which is a Jurassic Park style raptor with a movable jaw. So that one looks pretty cool. And in case you're interested in how much it costs, the metals are $29 and they have various styles of t-shirts that go from $29 to $45. And then they get bundled cheaper if you want a t-shirt and a medal or whatever you can also buy a bib which I would never wear if I was running alone on like a trail somewhere <laughs> <laughs> to make it I guess it might make you feel like you're in a race with other people
1: if you're on a treadmill at home yeah to make you feel more in it
0: I guess so they did say that you could run on a treadmill if you're interested in doing it that way which is another way that it's hard to track if people actually do the race So, yeah, it sounds pretty cool. This is the first time I had ever heard of these virtual runs, but it's an interesting idea and they sort of have a date, but it's not really specific. You can kind of do it whenever. It's a range of dates you can do. (laughs) Basically. So, yeah, very free form. But if you want a cool metal and you're going to be running or hiking.
1: I like the themes. Yeah. Too bad I don't like running.
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) You can hike instead.
1: Oh, yeah. This next one has nothing to do with hiking or running, but (laughs) there's two dinosaurs that are being auctioned off in Paris. There's an Allosaurus and Diplodocus skeleton. They're being sold as, quote, hip interior design objects, end quote. Huh. Yeah. So the auction house selling the skeleton said that, quote, dinosaurs have become cool, trendy, real objects of decoration like paintings and they are saying this is partly because Leonardo DiCaprio and Nicolas Cage bought dinosaurs, though Cage did have to return his tarposaurus. Apparently these auctions aren't that common. I didn't realize there's only about five each year. And in this one, the Allosaurus is 12.5 feet or 3.8 meters long and is expected to go for 650,000 euros. The Diplodocus is expected to go between four hundred and 500,000 euros. And apparently prices can go up if the skeleton shows any pathologies or has a really nice skull. So PhysOrg quoted Ronan Allain, a paleontologist at the Natural History Museum of Paris, saying, quote, it's the luxury world. It's not for people like us. We could decide to buy it preemptively. But for the theropod, for example, that would mean shelling out more than a million. So if we hear who wins the auction, we'll follow up. But I don't think it's that easy to find, especially as a private collector.
0: Yeah, that's true. This is the one we talked about before that's in the Eiffel Tower, too, I think.
1: No, this is a different one. That one's being held in June.
0: Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Because I saw somewhere that the unnamed dinosaur was probably an Allosaurus that was in the Eiffel Tower.
1: Oh, maybe. It's some sort of theropod, that's all we know, that hasn't been properly described yet, and that's happening in the beginning of
0: June. Interesting. And when's this one?
1: This has already happened by the time our recording is aired, but I don't know who won. Gotcha. And last in the news, thanks to Lindsay, who shared this one with us via Facebook. So Bob Campbell Geology Museum in South Carolina recently installed a Utah Raptor sculpture by local artist Duncan Burns, and it's a metal sculpture. It's of a skeleton, and it looks really cool. It's, they've got a video to go with it where it shows, it's a time-lapse video, and they talk about how they hammer each bone to give it a more 3D effect and welded each piece together and added texture with grinding and sanding wheels.
0: <laughs> That's cool. I really like dinosaur sculptures.
1: Yeah, it looks really nice. So if you are in South Carolina, check out that museum. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th, or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. you'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP
0: added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. And as a reminder, it's a little bit dark. So if you don't want to hear about war stuff, skip over it.
1: Today, we are chatting with Ethan Pettis, who is the author of Primitive War, which is a sci-fi novel about the Vietnam War and dinosaurs, and it was published in early 2017. And just a quick disclaimer, this is very much an adult book. There's a lot of graphic violence, but there is a dinosaur aspect, so. (laughs) All right. So, Ethan, what was the inspiration for your book? Kind of a long story
3: because... I've been fascinated with dinosaurs ever since I was a little kid. Like when I was just in preschool, I'd be reenacting Jurassic park with all my toys. And I would even make up my own ideas for future Jurassic park stories with action figures as a little kid. And, you know, there's that hunter scene, in the lost world where all the hunters just get picked off left and right. Mm -hmm. I would always reenact that scene because that was my favorite scene in the movie. And I remember holding like, these little figurine hunters and having raptors attack them. And then I just started to think like, did that guy have a family? (laughs) Like, (laughs) what does it mean to actually die? Like, what does that mean? Because they don't really explore that in Jurassic park. Like all the people that die are just forgotten immediately. Like they're just there to say some cool lines and then they're just vanished. So When I was in high school, we were reading the things they carried, which struck me very deeply because it was in the jungle setting, you know, Vietnam. And I've always loved the rainforest because of my love of Jurassic Park as a child. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that book and it being so visceral and raw. And it made me think more about like playing with those toys as a little kid. And I remember being in my ACT testing For college placement and when I would be done with the different segments of the test I would just doodle Vietnam era soldiers fighting dinosaurs.
1: (laughs) You've had this idea for a while.
3: Oh yeah like like I said this has been a lifelong journey I've always loved dinosaurs and that idea of death has been with me ever since I was a child so writing this out was actually an attempt at making sense of what death is Mm -hmm. but I also wanted to write about the things that I enjoy most so rainforest, dinosaurs, and also I wanted to write about that thing that has always stuck with me the most, which is the horror of war and the horror of the idea of death. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really intended to be such a dark book when I started it, because it originally started on a Jurassic Park form, and it was mainly just like a dinosaur adventure thing, like soldiers interacting with dinosaurs, what's not to love, especially if it's Vietnam era, because it's such a cool setting. But as I worked on the book more and more, I started to delve deeper into what the characters would probably be thinking or experiencing. And honestly, like I've read so many war memoirs and I I don't know. It's like I really put myself into that, the idea of that setting and what that would be like to live through. Mm-hmm. So,
1: so why the Vietnam War specifically?
3: Mostly because of the jungle environment, but also because that war was absolutely horrifying because it wasn't against any like specific threat. Like there was the Viet Cong and then there was the North Vietnamese army, but the North Vietnamese army was only, you know, fighting like large scale battles. But then the rest of the time it was just soldiers, random kids drafted or people that were idealistic wandering through jungles, just looking for people that were trying to kill them. And that's such a visceral terror that I wanted to kind of bring that to life, but amplify it to the next level because if you're lost in the jungle and you know there are things out there that want to hurt you, the jungle itself becomes its own horrifying entity.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, like Heart of Darkness.
3: Yeah. My second book, the sequel to Primitive War, is actually directly inspired by Heart of Darkness. It actually takes place in Africa during the Angolan Civil War of 1975, Mm -hmm. which was considered to be Africa's own Vietnam because you had different rebel militias fighting against uh, colonial force run by the Portuguese, but these different forces were funded by different factions of, you know, political ideology. So you had the Cubans funding the, uh, communist rebels, and then you had the United States funding the UPA, which were the democratic rebels. And then you had UNITA, which was funded by South Africa, and they were doing that just because they wanted to protect their own borders from this. Civil War they didn't want to have any of it spill over into their own borders.
1: Mm-hmm. So hearing you talk about this, that actually makes a lot of sense because when I was reading the book, I noticed there was there seemed to be a lot of characters with a lot of backstory, which personally made it a little hard for me to track it sometimes, but I totally understand it's good to establish that kind of thing, especially when you're going for the emotional aspect of it. But I do have to ask, like it, it seems like it took a little bit of a while to get to the dinosaur part, and since we are. A Dinosaur <laughs> Podcast.
2: Yeah. <laughs> we have to talk about the dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, absolutely.
1: But yeah, so why not bring the dinosaurs out right away? Why was it kind of, it was kind of a mystery almost in the beginning. Like, what was this thing that was in the jungle?
3: Yeah, because I wanted to have that mystery. I didn't want to just throw dinosaurs directly at the reader. And especially when you're trying to focus on what our current understanding of dinosaurs are, mm-hmm. such as a feathered or all these different types of forms that we've never seen in media. I wanted to draw out the mystery as much as possible because somebody might look at the cover of the book and say, that's a dinosaur skeleton. But when they're reading about these feathery things hiding in the brush, watching them at night, it's almost alien-esque. And I wanted to have that kind of like mystery built up until it's revealed they're dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And then it gets onto the dinosaur adventure whatnot but in terms of like the way that you plot out a story it's supposed to be like exposition rising action climax falling action resolution so the rising action i wanted to focus on the science fiction mystery i mean if you read jurassic park they don't get to the dinosaurs until 80 pages in or the lost world they don't get to the dinosaurs until 100 pages in and i felt like I wanted to maintain that. I wanted to drum up the mystery for the readers as well as for the characters in the story because they don't know what they're going to get into. They don't know what's out there lurking in the brush, but when they find out, it's world changing for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it makes sense.
1: Definitely. And I think you picked some really interesting dinosaurs in the story. You've got what, Deinonychus, Utah Raptor, T Rex, Stigimoloch. How do you decide those were the dinosaurs that were going to be part of the story?
3: So originally it was going to be Carcharodontosaurus and I wasn't even going to include Caprosuchus. I know Caprosuchus is technically not a dinosaur, but it was originally supposed to be uh, Gorgosaurus or Tarbosaurus because I wanted to have that same element of like you know mass hunting parties mm-hmm. pursuing singular prey animals and I like the idea of having Carcharodontosaurus as the big bad dinosaur and having fictional velociraptors because it has the name recognition but I think T. Rex was just a way of playing it safe. Everybody loves <laughs> Mm-hmm. I remember reading this article uh, a few years ago when I was first working on the book about the idea of Deinonychus actually being a arboreal predator, and I wanted to play with that idea because you already have Utah Raptor, the main villainous dinosaur of the book, a huge ambush predator, mm-hmm. and it's fun to work with, but like there are so many familiar forms that you can play and make almost abstract to what most people would expect of dinosaurs. So, you know, you watch Jurassic Park and you see a six foot inaccurate velociraptor, or you could see a small wolf sized Deinonychus climbing up a tree and jumping down onto a stickamolic, or a big feathery Utah raptor using its plumage as cover in the night. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, we always like it when some of the lesser-known dinosaurs get represented, so Stigy Moloch is a cool choice, too.
3: The sequel is actually going to focus on the lesser-known animals because I imagine if you read the first book, you might want to read the second book, and if you're going to read the second book, you've already seen the same animals, so why not switch it up a bit and throw in some more unfamiliar forms? So there's Sonoran Ithinosaurus. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly because I'm not reading it off of the page. <laughs> and... There's also Carcarodontosaurus, it's a big baddie, and there's also Giraffe and Pachyrannosaurus. Mm-hmm. So that may change to a Xenoceratops, I haven't decided yet. Mm-hmm. And the third book, I'm going to go all out with just different species across all different time periods, because in the third book, you're going to see an entire world going to the dinosaurs rather than dinosaurs appearing in a world.
0: Cool. Yeah, I like, too, that you change the setting so much. So It makes sense to, you know, do totally different dinosaurs if you're totally switching continents with it. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It kind of sounds like what a lot of people thought the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was going to be about. A lot of people thought it was going to be all about the militarization because they did some of that in the first Jurassic World. And then they were running off with them and people were like, oh, we're going to have all these crazy like dinosaur hybrid monsters and all this kind of stuff. And then it turns out it's like a volcano. (laughs) which not to say that's not cool but I think the military side of it could be more interesting
3: yeah I mean I personally don't like the idea of weaponizing dinosaurs because that's dino riders I mean it sounded outlandish when that leaked Jurassic Park 4 script came out around 2008 like Mm -hmm. I remember reading that and I was like please don't do that please don't do that (laughs) favorite franchise find something else to do i mean michael Crichton made it amazing at the end of jurassic park with the raptors on the beach watching the boats going across the horizon like that's perfect it's migration focus on migration don't just have a volcano and government experimentation on animals i mean (laughs) the idea that in modern times or even back in the 70s like in the vietnam war like the characters in my book never even mentioned the idea of weaponizing the dinosaurs because in any reality you exist in that's got to be a ridiculous idea like yeah we're we have tanks and we have napalm we have nuclear weapons but yeah why don't just like you know make extremely dangerous animals from different time periods and try to use them for what (laughs) like it's just completely illogical so never want to do that and also (laughs) kind of feel bad because A major theme in the second book is fire, and I'm not going to go into why, but I'll tell you right now there's no volcano, but (laughs) right now the uh, cover artist is working on the cover for the second book, and I'm worried that people are going to look at it and be like, oh, just like Fallen Kingdom. It's like, no, there's no volcano, there's no military trying to train dinosaurs. You have to put that in your
1: description. No volcano, no military.
3: (laughs) Yeah, the entire pack, it won't say anything on the back, just no volcanoes, I promise. <laughs> mm.
1: There were a lot of fight scenes, and those seemed like they were pretty realistic or they could be realistic. Did you do a lot of extra research into that kind of thing?
3: Oh, yeah. It, it, this might seem kind of creepy or weird, but like, I did a lot of research on actual animal attacks. Mm-hmm. Like, I had books where all it was was just descriptions of Animals attacking people and what their experiences were trying to fight off a tiger or a leopard or being caught in the death roll of a crocodile. Hmm. Oh, yeah.
1: That sounds intense. Yeah, <laughs> but it makes perfect
3: sense. Being attacked by a wild animal that you are not able to stop, I can't imagine a more visceral or horrifying way to die. So that was a huge thing for me to explore. Mm-hmm. Like in Jurassic World, you never really see people get chomped down or see what it's like for them to get chomped down. It's just, uh, and then,
0: yeah, it's very instant,
3: man. I read so many horrible animals. <laughs> I can't say I didn't enjoy it though, because I love ecological writing. Do you want to know a major inspiration for the Cyclops Utah Raptor in the book? The one that has the dagger in its eye? Oh yeah. There was a book I read called the tiger and it was about a man eating tiger that existed in Siberia. And I think it was the 60s or the 50s. Oh, no, I think it might have been like in the 80s, because I think it was after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. But basically, this tiger out in the tundra had a boar stolen from it by a hunter. And the hunter shot the tiger to get it away from its kill. And the tiger's teeth got broken when it got shot. And so the tiger, because it can't feast on its normal prey, mm-hmm. it tracked down that hunter and was waiting inside of that hunter's cabin before he even got home. Oh, and then wow. it killed him, ate him. There was a huge search party to find the tiger. The tiger ended up finding and killing that man's nephew, coincidentally. Oh. And it also, it also tried to break into an outhouse in a work camp. And that was a huge inspiration for Cyclops because I like the idea of an animal that doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. It's you know how Komodo dragons hunt? Like they bite an animal, and just their saliva. The I don't remember if it's still bacteria or if there's that new theory that it's actually a venom that we didn't know about. I don't know what the current science of that is, but mm-hmm. you know Komodo dragons, they bite something, they just track it down until it falls down. Well, Utah Raptor in the book bites one of the main characters, and then the game's on. And then once it gets hurt, it's just intensifying the game. Then it's just out for destruction.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you made. The Utah Raptors especially very smart in this book
3: <laughs> and sneaky. But they don't open doors.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's funny. That doesn't
0: make any sense. <laughs> Good thing there aren't doors in the jungle.
3: <laughs> yeah. They reach a few different structures in the jungle. But even then, the Utah Raptors aren't about opening a door. They're about cornering their prey and ambushing them and finding the best way to get to them. You may not remember it, but I mean, I've reread my book a lot of times from revising it. So there's a moment where they're the main characters are inside of an abandoned laboratory Mm -hmm. and they're about to throw open the door that the Utah Raptors are attacking so that they can shoot a rocket out to get them out of the way so they can run away. And they notice that the Utah Raptors are actually like slowing down their charges on the door. And then, as soon as they open the door, the Utah Raptors are right there, just waiting for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Jump right at them! <laughs> I had a lot of fun writing the Utah Raptors, and the Utah Raptors are going to stay through all three books. You're going to see a lot of the dinosaurs change from book to book, but the Utah Raptors are always going to be prevalent throughout the series.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it showed the enjoyment of writing them. I liked also this idea of you mentioned it earlier. It's dark. And maybe it, they look like shrubs because of their feathers and you don't know exactly what is out there. And it makes it scarier. Can you just talk a little bit about like how did you come up with this idea of looking like a shrub? So
3: if I recall, during the Cretaceous period, I don't think grass existed yet. So there was primarily ground cover in the form of ferns and palms and whatnot. So if we accept the fact that dinosaurs had feathers, I know that's kind of like a hot button topic for most paleo fans, but like I accept dinosaurs most likely had feathers, especially dromaeosaurids and other theropods. Mm-hmm. But I think they found feathers in amber that showed protofeathers, and protofeathers I think would be perfect for like just having that bare, central, shaggy cover where it could be a certain shade of green, earthy colors, and if they're below the uh, undergrowth like right below the lower story between the forest floor and the uh, top of the undergrowth, if they're right there and they're that shade of green. And that's all it takes.
0: Yeah, that's a really good idea, especially because dinosaur feathers or bird feathers, whatever you want to call them, can be green, but human and mammal hair can't. So it opens them up for a lot more degrees of freedom in terms of, you know, camouflage than mammals have.
3: Yeah. And I kind of, got carried away with the whole ambush predator idea. But I mean, if you look at most large hunting animals that are alive today, it's hard to be a hunter if you're really big. And the Utah raptors are just big enough where if they aren't able to hide themselves through evolutionary adaptations, then they're not going to have any luck. Because if you're a little animal scurrying around in the brush and you see a 10-foot tall Dromeo Sword walking towards you, you're just going to be like, all right, I'm getting away from here. But if it's just the right shade of green and it's just under the foliage, you're as good as dead. <laughs> look at tigers, look at Nile crocodiles, saltwater crocodiles. Mm-hmm. Most large carnivorous animals rely on the ability to ambush because as much as I like the idea of Utah raptors running across large open landscapes and pursuing great big animals i don't think that's really the most viable use of their caloric intake i feel like probably be better off saving your calories just hiding and waiting
0: yeah Mm -hmm. for sure you do see that with a lot of larger predators Mm -hmm.
1: well cool i saw on your facebook page it says you work at mesozoica
3: Yeah, but I actually need to remove that because I stopped working with them a couple months before they published their game. I just haven't changed that because I'm lazy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough.
3: (laughs) They are fun to work with, though, but I'm primarily just focused on writing right now. I have so much on my plate. I'm editing my second book right now and trying to get it out by the end of the year, the beginning of next year. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently finishing outlining the third book. And I also have a lot of other side projects I have to work on.
1: Dinosaur projects or other things?
3: Oh, all Primitive War projects. So there's actually going to be two anthology series of short stories that are going to come out between the first and second novel and then between the second and third novel that take place all around the world between each book. So the first anthology is going to show how the mass migration of animals outside the valley affects people in Southeast Asia all over the continent and it's going to kind of like show a live tracking of the animals migration across the earth
2: mm-hmm.
3: and i'm also going to be working on a another kind of like a side book so we're going to work on a special project where it's going to be like a 40 page book and it's going to be called andre's field guide mm-hmm. and basically the sketches are going to be included as kind of like infographics like it's going to be done in such a way that looks like something that he would have like scribbled on a sketch talking about these animals that he's observing in the wild. And there's also going to be journal entries, uh, kind of explaining what it's like for him to be in Vietnam for so long, hiding in the forest Hmm. around dinosaurs for a year. Oh, cool. That'll be like a little 40 page project, but that's going to come after I'm done with the second book. And after I'm happy with the anthology, when I get all that out of the way, then I'll work on that. Dinosaurs are my life right now. I mean, for now, I intend to be spending the next three years on this series alone and making it into the most immersive world possible. I want people to be able to look at the art, maybe listen to audiobooks or radio plays. I want people to be able to immerse themselves completely in this universe. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to let people submit short stories for that anthology series. They most likely won't be included in the printed versions of the anthologies, but I think it'd be a fun way for people to get involved because one of the biggest ways I got into writing was on the Jurassic Park legacy forums, doing fan fictions of Jurassic Park and also doing the role playing games, acting out dinosaurs existing on Isla Sorna and Isla Nublar. Mm -hmm. I want people involved on that level, but I also want to give other writers a spotlight because I know a lot of young writers who haven't had the opportunity to like get their work out there. And I'd like to promote
2: people like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We totally understand.
2: (laughs) Can you tell them about this?
1: (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) That's great, though. So where's the best place for people to find out more about your work? The easiest
3: thing to do is to uh, go on Facebook and look up the Primitive War page. I update that usually like once a week or once every two weeks with artwork and just little bits of news here and there. But if you go to the primitive war discussion group on Facebook, that's where I just let out all the secrets. Like I've already put up a poll so people can vote on what they think the sequels should be called. Mm-hmm. And I've already shared artwork that I haven't shared on the page yet. So if they want to see like stuff before it comes out, that's where to go. And I'm always open to talk about the book with people like, Obviously, I could talk about it all day long, so I'm totally, (laughs) I'm open to questions, I'm open to conversation, and and I'm more than willing to answer any questions people have on that discussion group page.
1: That's great. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks. Pleasure's
3: all mine.
1: Thanks again, Ethan. I think it's really great that there is dinosaur fiction out there for adults, and it's always really cool to hear about the process behind it.
0: Yeah.
1: And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Hoplidosaurus, which is mentioned in Jurassic World. Actually, you can see it in a promotional image of the holoscape interface at the Innovation Center in Jurassic World, and it may be in the Galimimus Valley and Cretaceous Cruise, if you remember those attractions in the movie.
0: You have to have a very good eye.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Just a reminder, we're going through... Uh, As many of the dinosaurs as we can that were mentioned in either the books or the movies in Mm -hmm. upcoming film.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and potentially ones that might be in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, because we don't really know yet. So just covering all the bases here.
1: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So this one... Hoplitosaurus was a polycanthenae, which is a type of ankylosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now South Dakota in the U.S., in the Lakota Formation. Nice. And its name means hoplite lizard. And a partial skeleton was found in 1898 by Nelson Horatio Darden. They found ribs, caudal vertebrae, right femur, and some armor, including tall spines. It was described in 1901 by Frederick Augusta Lucas as a new species of Stegosaurus, Stegosaurus marshi. You can guess who that's named after, (laughs) Marsh. But in 1902, it was considered to be its own genus, Hoplidosaurus. Charles W. Gilmore described all the known material in 1914, and now the type species is Hoplidosaurus marshi. And again, species name in honor of Charles Marsh, who named Stegosaurus, so makes sense. The genus name refers to heavily armored soldiers called hoplites in uh, ancient Greek city state armies.
0: I remember those from various video games.
1: You're going to say history classes? No. <laughs> no, video, video games. games.
0: Okay. <laughs> I went to school in the US. We don't learn history that well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Depends on the school. But anyway, there's not much known about it, about the dinosaur. So some scientists wanted to synonymize it with Poa canthus in the late nineteen eighties to early nineteen nineties, and William Blows and Javier Peretta Superbiola named Polacanthus Marshi, but that was rejected. Kenneth Carpenter and Jim Kirkland found that the similarities between the Hoplitosaurus and Polacanthus were actually similarities found in other ankylosaurs, or there were similarities based on damage to the bones. Hmm. Polycanthus and Hoplitosaurus had similar armor, though Hoplitosaurus did not have the sacral shield of armor over the hips that Polycanthus had. Hoplitosaurus had osteoderms along its back and may have also had spikes on its shoulders and sides, and it may have used its armor as defense. It was about four feet or 1.2 meters tall at the hips, and it was herbivorous, and it probably ate vegetation low on the ground because it could not rear up.
0: It's hard with all that armor. Mm hmm. And little legs.
1: Oh. <laughs> Don't underestimate it, though.
0: No, ankylosaurs are the best. Well. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day, speaking of ankylosaurs, sort of, is that the Morrison formation is named for a small town in Colorado named Morrison. Who'd have thunk it? Morrison currently has an estimated population of 435 people. Wow. But the Morrison formation includes Stegosaurus, Apotosaurus, Bronosaurus, Brontosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Camarasaurus, Diplodocus, Allosaurus, Saurophaganax, Ceratosaurus, Ornitholestes, and about 40 more, meaning that there is about one dinosaur species for every nine people in Morrison. Lucky. <laughs> yeah, but obviously not all of these dinosaurs were found in the town of Morrison because the Morrison formation covers parts of 13 states in the US. But Apatosaurus Diplodocus, and Stegosaurus were all originally found in the city of Morrison, and named from those specimens so pretty awesome they also have their own natural history museum and it's just a few miles southwest of denver so if you're in colorado it's probably a good one to check out
1: yes and that's on our list too someday
0: yeah it's also (laughs) on our dinosaur map on our website
1: yep and that wraps up this episode of i know dino thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes and check out the link in our show notes so you can enter our giveaway, get that velociraptor. Yeah, for sure. And of course, get updates on our trip around Asia on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Thanks again and until next time.